It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to the New European Podcast. My name is Richard Porritt and I'm joined by Matt Withers. Hello there. Um, no, no Steve Angus this week. He is, he's on some kind of secret mission because I don't know if, listener, you noticed last week, we asked him where he was going. He didn't really tell us. Um, so we're not entirely sure where he is. I think he's deep undercover doing something for the New European. So you may well read about that in the coming weeks. He's like, he is, he is the sort of James Bond figure of the, uh, of the, uh, of the operation, I have to say. Um, well, welcome. Never mind, no Steve, but we've got a packed show. Matt is here with me. Of course, you all know Matt with us, uh, not only a great friend of this pod, but a superb contributor and actually does all the behind the scenes stuff, which we're very grateful for. Um, we'll do the news, as always. Um, and then we've got two super guests. We've got uh, James Ball, another friend of the pod, who you'll know from his uh, excellent writing in The New European. And then um, and then we've got uh, Tim Walker as well, who is, uh, who is a, another columnist from The New European. So James is going to speak about Boris Johnson, camping and things like that. And uh, Tim is going to talk about the the Lib Dems' very exciting three-and-a-half-year search for a leader. They finally have one, so we'll discuss that as well. And in the absence of Steve, I'm sorry, but no Brexit of the week this week, but I have done a little quiz. I'm not sure it's up to Steve's standards, Matt, but I thought, because I read in the Sunday Times this week, that there may be a temporary parliament, um, I don't know if you saw this, on um, on uh, horse. Uh, guard parade i have i saw the artist's impression it looks very much like the bull ring in birmingham it does. doesn't it, <laughs> it does. parked outside parliament it does look like the bull ring you're absolutely right or, or the cool. uh, the the alliance arena by munich's ground in, <laughs> yes. in bavaria yes. that's quite right and i wonder if it could change colors because the alliance arena of course switches doesn't it between between blue and red maybe it could change colors depending on who's won the vote so if labor win the vote it goes red if the Tories win it, it goes blue. That's not I a mean, bad idea, is it? I, I've heard worse ideas from this government. There you go. Well, I'm not a member of the government. Maybe I should be. Um, so we, I thought we'd do a little quiz on Parliament, on the actual building and some of the arcane sort of rules that they have and stuff. I'm always fascinated by that sort of stuff. So we'll get to that right at the end. Um, but first of all, and as I said, we'll get to Boris. But first of all, I want to talk about uh, Tony Abbott. Now, this seems like a very sensible, his former... Australian PM, of course. Um, he was a, 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 every Australian I speak to seems to suggest he was a glorious leader. So, what better role for him than as a trade advisor um, as we hurtle towards a no deal Brexit? Matt, what do you reckon? 
Yeah, this is uh, incredible. It's, at the time recording, it's not been confirmed, but it has all but. I suspect by the time people listen to this, uh, it, he's been named. I mean, you're getting into proper, you know, Caligula's horse territory here, aren't you? Or, you know, Mike Ashley bringing Dennis Wise in at, at Newcastle. <laughs> um, Boris Johnson and Dominic Cummings increasingly appear to be appointing people to patently unsuitable roles just to reinforce the message that they don't care what anybody else thinks. So you ennoble your own brother and Ian Botham uh, and an IRA supporting revolutionary Marxist. I've got a few of Tony Abbott's greatest hits here. Um, yes, please go, go for it. it. I mean, you know, you know this is uh, taking candy from a baby, but uh, he said global warming was probably uh, doing good. Uh, <laughs> he said that green policies were akin to primitive people once killing goats to appease the volcano gods. Yeah, I like um, that. I like when he when he said that he's probably doing good. You know, probably. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's willing. He's willing to hedge his bets. Yeah. Uh, I, I love the the, the the goat thing. It reminded me, of course, goat was Gordon Brown's government of all the talents, whereas Boris Johnson's is a government of all the something else beginning with cheese. Um, Tony Abbott back remain because there's much a dislike about the EU, but very little that would be improved if Britain left. Uh, he then converted immediately after the result to say he was quietly thrilled. Uh, he said he was probably felt a bit threatened by uh, homosexuality, which is perfectly normal. Uh, he's questioned whether men are by physiology or temperament more adapted to exercise authority. And in 2009, he missed a vote on a $42 billion stimulus package uh, because he'd fallen asleep after drinking, quote, maybe two bottles of wine. Well, I mean, as excuses go, that is one I've used. Um, <laughs> yeah. But not normally for something so important. Um, th there's more, though. There's more, isn't there? Because there's the famous onion incident. Do, do you recall that? Oh, go on. Well, this was when he was on some kind of visit. You know, politicians go around and point at things and do visit. Yeah. He was on some kind of visit, and he was, he was holding this onion in his hand. Uh, as you might hold an apple, say. And as he's been interviewed by the, by the journalists who are present, I believe, he just took a big old bite out of this raw onion. It had the skin on and everything, and he just chomped his way through this, this interview. And when he was asked why, um, he said it was to show appreciation to the hardworking farmer that had grown said onion. <laughs> I mean, quite something. And he don't flinch. It's like he just eats onions all the time. It's well, perfectly I mean, to, to paraphrase uh, Seinfeld, it never really took off as a hand food, onions. <laughs> no, not quite. And then there was the sex worker incident, right? Which might sound more scandalous than it actually is. But nonetheless, he was on a phone-in and um, a, 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 a thing which is, is quite an elderly woman rang in and was having very hard times finding work and was on the breadline, etc. And, and, and addressed the prime minister. I think he was a prime minister at that stage and said to, said to him, you know, I, I, I've got to the end of the line. I'm now having to work on a telephone sex line. Now, slightly different um, incident, but you might remember when Gordon Brown called that woman a bigoted woman way yeah. back in 2010. He was... He was, he was played the tape on the Jeremy Vine show on Radio 2 and he was being filmed while he was being interviewed and he was there with his head in his hands. Well, a similar thing happened. Tony Abbott, although he was on the radio, didn't think that radio studios might actually have the ability to film the people who were, who were talking. And he winked when this woman, to the host, he winked at the host when this woman said she worked on a chat line and then gave, gave this incredible smile, um, which didn't go down too well, as you might imagine. Um, 
in, repeated sexist incidents. And if you haven't seen the video of Julia Gillard, who was the PM at this moment in time, absolutely berating him as a sexist and a misogynist um, in the Australian House of Parliament, then please do. It is quite the watch. Um, he once stood next to a poster, in fact, of Julia Gillard, of which the headline was Ditch the Witch, um, which is clearly not a good look. Um, he, he also uh, referred to women doing the ironing. It was something to do with um, uh, how prices might go up or something like that. Um, and, uh, you know, the, in fact, the only two people who, who until this point, until this, until this rather bizarre appointment, seemed to be uh, friends of his were Nigel Farage and Tommy Robinson, who'd shown uh, great support for a speech um, where he, he said that um, it was a 2015 speech. In fact, he was in London. It was at the uh, Guildhall, I believe. Um, where he said that we should close the borders and uh, you know um, and stand up for ourselves. So this is a man who's got um, some rather dubious friends, and he's now. Oh, we should mention by the way that Matt's, Matt's in uh, Matt's in Hackney, and it's quite busy outside today. I don't know what's going on, but there yeah. you hear sirens every now and then. I, I, I live on a, a main road through uh, through East London, and uh, yeah, it's been quite heavy on the old sirens today. Our apologies for that, but we are backing out. We're back in our bunkers. Um, sadly, uh, no, gratefully, not back in my underwater bunker, I hope. I think I've sorted my sound problem out. So I think we can all agree, Matt, that Tony Abbott is going to be a fantastic addition to uh, to this great British nation. Well, he's certainly got the CV for it, you'd have to say, for this uh, for this government. He ticks pretty much every box, and there's no way on earth that this can end badly and humiliatingly. Now, from one bit of utter nonsense to another, and it does appear that this, um, you know, I think this year, because of lockdown and coronavirus, silly season, as we call it in the journalistic trade, which tends to be the month of August when everyone everyone goes on holiday and it's difficult to to get the sales figures up, does seem to have happened right at the end of the month. Because um, what is this, you know, Boris Johnson, we're going to talk to. James, about the absence of Boris Johnson. I thought you were going to say we were going to talk to Boris Johnson. Huh? We, well, say, I've, not, I've not booked him. Do you know what? He, he, he pops up in the most unlikely places, so this would be a very unlikely place for him to pop up. Um, but he, uh, he, you know, he's not had very much to say about anything. Yes, finally, of course, uh, had something to say about the A-levels and GCSE scandal. But he, he did pause to tell us his thoughts on this sort of made-up scandal about the BBC uh, proms this what's become like a bizarre culture well what, what what's your what's your views on on this matt well firstly i i question uh whether this is a silly season story i mean we've both been news editors on newspapers during august i think a silly season story isn't completely unconnected to politics my favorite he used to be a hardy perennial do you remember a guy called andy park from wiltshire yeah but I don't know why. He was the guy who would pop up every August uh, in the papers because he celebrated Christmas every day. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. He was the guy who would cook himself a full uh, turkey dinner with all the trimmings and watch a video of the Queen's speech. And he would yeah. unwrap in the morning the presents to himself that he'd wrapped the previous evening. Um, not heard of him recently as he single <laughs> i believe that his wife left him actually I mean, that was a story which is amazing that she stuck it out for so long um so yeah uh, you know that's a, a bit of a diversion i'd say that's a silly season story i think this story is uh, it's just a distraction isn't it it's a bit of tabloid red meat you know the coronavirus crisis shows no sign of a bait in the Economy's hovering off the edge of a cliff in the manner of Wiley Coyote. The school reopenings remain in a state of chaos. The 
Brexit talks are stalled, presumed dead. And the only thing that's lured Boris Johnson out of the tent in Scotland he's been hiding in all summer is a, the programme of the last night of the proms and opportunity to describe the BBC as, as, as wet. Um, and you know what? It's worked. It's, it's getting proven headlines on the front of the Telegraph and the Express and in the mail. And it's, it's a distraction technique. And the journalists who are covering it are being played like absolute fiddles. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I, I tend, I mean, I, I do tend to agree with you. I think, I think, um, I do, I don't think the BBC handled this quite as well as they probably could. I would have, I wish they'd have been m- more on it from the start and just said, uh, we expect it'll be sung next year. <laughs> do you know what I mean? I think that might have been a better way to to drown this story. But, uh, but anyway, you know, there it is, and we've got the the prime minister in a very Trumpian manner, sort of using it as as part of something else completely and it really is a, it's a well frankly it's a depressing story it's a depressing story and for that reason i think we should move on um and 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 it doesn't get much more depressing frankly than the next news story and that is the republican convention this is a convention that has gone that has happened we spoke about um uh, the fact that this was coming last week of course and um and trump speaks after we record so we won't be able to reflect on that on this podcast but but pence did speak um Last night, no mention of the ongoing violence. Of course, we've had another incredible, awful police shooting this week. We've had what appears to be a Trump supporter um, killing um, BLM uh, protesters as well. No mention of any of that. We've got an NBA boycott. And I believe, I don't follow basketball massively closely, but I believe they're in the playoffs now. So this is like, you know, a serious part of the season to to be boycotting. And um, and we've also, of course, um, got 100 and almost 180,000 US victims of coronavirus. And it seemed to me like Pence's speech was um, on the back of what uh, what a great job the uh, president had done with regards to health and and law and order. Um, the only thing that came out of it, which seemed to be, uh, you know, which I could I could understand from a political point of view, was there was a, quite a heavy reliance yesterday at the at the um at the conference about the at the convention sorry uh with regards to the average working man you know that's sort of that that of that obvious trump um trump supporter there was i think there was a lobster fisherman and a farmer and you know about the economic stuff that is literally the only fallback trump has got now um and uh, the problem is and steve uh, doesn't quite agree with us but I, I, I very sadly i can see donald trump winning again and it's things like I don't know if you saw, but there was these pretty awful pictures of of some protesters, um, some you know supposedly Black Lives Matter protesters, sort of rounding on people in Washington, I think it was in D.C., um, and demanding that they put their fists in the air. And I think scenes like that are what is going to is going to help Trump out almost. Agreed or? Yeah, I mean, I I do tend to agree with you i mean I, I, i'll put this caveat and i'm i'm not one of those uk journalists who pretend to be an expert on u.s politics and think that i, know, I am one of those <laughs> like, well, you're, you're, are you one of these people who you know because you watch the west wing you think you've got a unique yeah. insight into the way the blue collar vote in michigan is going to go <laughs> absolutely those bellwether states you know i, I i'll to let you know i watched spin city as well so i've got Oof. a little little bit of knowledge oh. about the politics of tier below national one, politics. One, one for the teenagers. Um, <laughs> it, 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 I, I find it difficult to understand a lot of people. Do. I mean, it looks to me like this entire convention is an exercise in shoring up 
Trump's base and that's it you know there's no positive vision there's no positive offer beyond the notion that Joe Biden is a you know quote threat to the American way of life and it, it seems for us from this side of the of the pond uh, for that to resonate you have to persuade people that Biden seeks to uh, quote here to destroy our way of life our neighborhoods, schools, churches, and values. And given that Biden's a fairly avuncular, you know, social Democrat who's been around politics half a century and served two terms as vice president, persuading people that he's now Mao Zedong seems a, seems a stretch. But uh, I think, you know, we tend to view these things through uh, a UK-centric lens. You know, the, the title of that John Sopel book a year or two ago, If Only They Didn't Speak English, you know, I think we we do think that they're like us because we speak the same same language and if they spoke spanish or portuguese or something maybe we we'd realize that it's a very very different country it's it's one that's very difficult for us to get to get a, a handle on um so i i tend to to agree with you i i fear we are heading for a, a second term and i fear it might be a second term dominated by him obsessing about changing the constitution to get a third yeah yeah well that well there is there is a depressing, <laughs> really depressing. Before before you turn off, dear listener, please don't, because um, we have to talk about Boris Johnson and his camping. But more seriously, where on earth has he been? Now I've got my fingers firmly crossed. I think he's there. That the technology is going to help me out. And James Ball, the wonderful James Ball, is with us. James, are you there? Hi there. I am indeed here. Fantastic. Thanks so much for joining us. Um, the, the reason I wanted to get you on was because I thought. Um, I thought your piece in the in the newspaper this week was superb. And guys, if you haven't gone out and got it yet, then rush out immediately. Um, but also, in in what has been a strange news week, uh, you know, with Tony Abbott and the proms, etc., we had this strange vision of these pictures that are about came out about a week ago, didn't we? Of, of of Boris on on his holiday. Before we get into the nuts and bolts of where's he been and this sort of view of this, I really liked when you, when you talked in the piece about how Boris wants to be a sort of chairman of the government. I thought we could talk about that. But what 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 did you think of the, of the pictures of this sort of, is it a TP10 or a belt? I don't know what it's called, but what, what you know, were, were, you, were you shocked? I mean, I was, I yeah, was fairly well, shocked. I mean, this this is not a tent that anyone who, like, goes camping would ever be seen dead near. Um, it's the kind of tent I stay in at a festival because I'm a middle-class idiot that works in the media. Like, it's, it's, it's sort of one of those TP-type bell tents. But what's really amazing is it was very clearly pitched up right next to a kind of country cottage that you could lease. And yeah. so it clear they were clearly staying in the cottage, weren't they? Oh, well, I mean, works. you know, it's sort of it feels like one of those where someone's agreed to camp on the condition that they still have a kitchen and a flushing loo. I do have some sympathy with him in that I would not want to um I would not want to camp with a newborn baby, but tents are quite fun, you know? They're quite fun, aren't they? Um but yes, maybe it was just more for gazing at the stars with young Carrie rather than rather than actually sleeping in, which I you know, I, I can I can understand that. But I love the pictures, I think it was a day or two later, the angry farmer leaning on the fence. Did you see that? <laughs> I can't believe he pitched it in my field because they had they actually Going over a barbed wire fence to pitch the tent, <laughs> do it just outside this lovely. It looked glorious, of course. This this incredible remote Scottish, um, Scottish uh, not island, sorry, Scottish sort of lakeside view, or whatever it was. I do wonder though, James, and I'll be interested in your view on this. 
about the influence of of, of Carry on on Boris's holiday choice. Do you think he would have? Do you think he would have done that? Um, you know, had he had he been holidaying alone, say. Uh, I suspect he wouldn't. I, you get the feeling he might have done something like his dad did and uh, nip off over to a Greek island somewhere or to Cyprus. But um, I think, you know, I, I suspect uh, he was up in Scotland, so he's probably moved the independence polls a, another few points that way. <laughs> um, I mean, there was that priceless quote from the farmer as well, this sort of angry local, local villager pose, where he's going, well, when I want to go in a field, I open the gate. it was fantastic but uh, i mean that was all that was all very jolly and i had a nice chuckle to myself um and i don't think anyone and you certainly in this piece are not saying that you know boris johnson doesn't is not shouldn't go on holiday or whatever but i think the underlying piece really in the underlying sentiment in your piece is not so much that he's been away in a tent you know whatever whatever um, gets your temple up or whatever, I guess. But um, but but the, there has been there has definitely been an absence of of leadership, not just in the past few weeks, but in in the past few months. Do you want to sort of expand upon that for me, James? Yeah, the problem wasn't so much the prime minister was on holiday; is that it didn't feel any different from the two weeks before or the week after. Um, we're in the middle of quite a lot of crises right now. You know, um, Corona, just nice nice there in the background, deadly global pandemic. We've got a massive recession. We're heading towards no deal Brexit. We decided to mark down largely working class kids uh, from imaginary exams. Um, you've got all of this sort of rumbling through. And you would have thought number 10 was vacant. Um, and perhaps in a sense it was because Dom, Dominic Cummings has been off since the start of July as well. And it almost feels like Dom has sort of said, uh, well, you know, sort of locked number 10 and uh, hidden the keys so that no one can do anything while he's away. Yeah. He's sort of, you know, it's it's been, it's no problem for the Prime Minister to take a week or two's holiday. I think, you know, the pressures of that job, they should need to. But he's just felt completely absent at a time where there's quite a lot to do. Do you think that, um, do you think that, it wouldn't have been quite as noticeable if he had a talented uh, cabinet, you know, but we've seen, you know, Williamson, all at sea, et cetera, et cetera. Do you think that there is a, a, a very noticeable lack of talent? Well, for, from the very top, but I mean, you know, underneath the prime minister as well. I mean, the, the Tories are in a slightly difficult position where as much as they want us to forget it, they've been in government for 10 years They've had all of their little factional wars. They're on their third prime minister. You start to hit a period where, you know, your MPs hate each other more than they hate the other side. And so despite a majority of 80, I mean, he's drawing from a very, very narrow Mm. sort of talent pool to the point where the education secretary is someone who got fired uh, for allegedly leaking actually classified information to a newspaper uh, the Home Secretary is someone who uh, was fired for, turned out, running secret foreign policy with uh, Israeli diplomats. Um, you sort of, he's, he's not drawing from the best and the brightest here, is he? Well, no. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, really, I, I mean, you know, really when, uh, when Tony Abbott is the uh, top of the list for any appointment, uh, you know that something's going a bit wrong recruitment-wise, don't you? I mean, good so in. In 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 um, 
you talk, and I'm really fascinated about this um, prime minister as chairman thing. If the cabinet was stronger, if these guys were all on their, on their, uh, you know, if they're all top performers and on the game, then then perhaps that could work. But we actually do need a prime minister who is not afraid of a bit of micromanagement, not afraid of getting in there, not just wheeled out to do the big um, sort of rabble rousing speeches and add those two together. And even the tiniest crisis is going to be, is going to be a big, a big problem. I mean, Boris Johnson did an okay-ish job as London mayor because he basically appointed three or four fairly talented deputies. And it turns out the London mayor isn't actually responsible for all that much. Mm -hmm. Um, and it feels as if, in his head, he could come into number 10 and do the same thing. Uh, you know, let the ministers get on with it. Just step in every now and then when you absolutely need to. And otherwise be the figurehead of the government. But this sort of runs exactly against what his number 10 is doing, which is being incredibly control freakish and trying to sort of run the entirety of government. And he's even merging number 10 with the cabinet office to try and really strengthen number 10 and so his officials you know don cummings and all the other people around are sort of at war with the civil service throwing out five permanent secretaries now we should probably rename the job title soon um and uh, they're sort of doing all of that while boris is simultaneously trying to be really hands-off is reportedly still slowly recovering from coronavirus and has just never in his life actually shown any desire to get his hands dirty running things. No. Do you think um, that Labour um, has capitalised on this lack of leadership enough, or do you think that they could have maybe been um, a bit more aggressive in this in this period in the last sort of four weeks or so? I think Labour uh, have been laying the foundations on getting the government on competence. And I think that's probably quite a good thing to get Tories on. Uh, Labour's reputation sort of historically is, you know, nice, they want to look after you, but they're not very good at running things, are they? The Tories is, well, maybe they're bastards, but at least they can sort of manage stuff. And so if you can knock out competence long term, that makes sense for him. I suspect Starmer is actually trying not to get his polling boost and his sort of attention too early. He's got the EHRC report coming and it's going to be awful and it's going to cause a massive Labour civil war. So does he want to set out his stall before and then have the whole thing flipped and ruined and probably set on fire? Or does he just want to get a few digs in, lay a few foundations, let the time bomb explode and then come out of the traps and rebuild? I suspect he's doing the latter. Yeah, yeah, and, and probably the government's... Uh worst enemies themselves right now um you 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 go on to and this podcast gets seems to get more and more depressing all the time but you you go on to to talk about sort of what's next so you know we, we've already had that you you know you talk about that we're already engulfed in, in numerous crises but it's getting colder out there isn't it there was a distinct smell of autumn when i was outside earlier and what sort of challenges you know in the next six months what is the worst case scenario that Boris Johnson is going to face? So, well, you know, I'm a Yorkshireman, so I've got the right sort of temperament for this, but winter is coming. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's sunset before 8pm today. I've actually put a cardigan on because it's cold. Um, winter's coming. We've just about got 
to a weird sort of simile of normal over summer because we can eat and drink outside with keeping our windows open and ventilating and doing all of that stuff. It's not that easy to do that in November. Um, and so we've got schools coming back soon and schools are a Petri dish for illnesses. You know, every parent gets about three new cold viruses every September from their kids. We're probably going to see that spread Corona a bit. We're going to be packing indoors again because it'll be cold. We won't be ventilating as much. It will be really, really, really strange if we don't have an uptick in cases. We don't really seem to have much of a government plan for that. We've then got the fact that the NHS always has quite a lot of capacity problems in winter. It's usually 97% full. It won't take many hospitalizations to fill the NHS. And then we're left with, will we act quickly enough to do low-key sort of shutdowns, maybe close pubs, maybe go back to essential shops in local areas where needed? Or will we end up blowing it, trying to keep everything open and having a long lockdown? In the middle of that, we've got the fact that they're withdrawing things like the furlough scheme. So we've probably got to get a lot of job losses. We're losing some of the infrastructure to look after people. And, you know, the topic that this newspaper comes back to quite a lot, Brexit. And as it stands, we're just over four months away from a no-deal Brexit in the middle of a pandemic. And the Cabinet Office knows about this. The civil service is trying to prepare for this. And you've basically just got ministers going out, sort of being Pollyanna-ish and saying, everything's going to be fine with increased levels of mania. So we've got a really, really difficult few months for any government to handle. And we haven't seen this government get an easy thing right yet, let alone anything difficult. Mm. Sorry, that yeah. really was cheery, wasn't it? <laughs> James, uh, Matt here, hello. Um, I've got the, the paper, uh, which is available in all good news agents, open here at, at your article. There's a picture of um, Boris Johnson in this ludicrous red boiler seat. But the look on his face is that of a man thinking, what am I, what am I doing? And he, he wanted to be prime minister because he wanted to be prime minister. I think we'd all agree, didn't have any burning sense of uh, societal changes that, say, a Blair, a Blair had. Um, I know that, that Downing Street knocked down that story, a diary story, a couple of days ago that a relative of Dominic Cummings suggested he might be gone within the year. But do you, do you think that there is going to be some point in which he thinks, do you know what, I could be earning a quarter of a million pounds a time giving speeches in, in America. I don't need this. I don't want this. This was not what I asked for. I think the problem is that once you become prime minister, if you do it in the kind of egomaniacal way Boris Johnson did, and David Cameron was just the same. I think he'd actually said once he wanted to be prime minister because he thought he'd be rather good at it. Yeah. Um, which was actually a wrong read from a biography, why Gordon Brown loathed him so much. He couldn't understand why he wouldn't want it to do something, um, which good on him. Um, but once you're there, they can't help but think about legacy. And you don't want to be the person who did it, screwed it up and left after 18 months. You know, the sort of Anthony Eden problem. And so his ego will mean he will try to cling on. The question is, if the polling moves, I think the Tories will be very willing to get rid of him quite quickly. 
but I'd be very surprised if they did it before 2022, maybe even start of 2023. Um, and so I think we've probably got him for a while because it doesn't suit anyone in the Tories to get rid of him right now. Someone's going to have to be the coronavirus PM and someone's going to have to be the Brexit no deal PM. And isn't it handy if you can put it on Boris and he starts to get bored of the job and, you know, barely resists a coup in 2022 or so, install someone more popular, go for the, uh, I mean, I guess it te technically counts as a fifth term, doesn't it? Uh, since we've had so many damn elections, but uh, I think, I don't think his ego would let him just gracefully step aside. And in terms of his own backbenchers, um, watching them, in, in Parliament, especially this huge group of, of, of newbies from the so-called Red Wall, um, and listening to the types of questions they're putting, you get the impression that their loyalty is very much to the constituency over the party and, and the PM. Um, so they, they may be more liable to, to turn than the, the, the previous kind of, you know, what, what we see as Shire Tories. The Tories did quite a clever thing with their red wall candidates. They're almost all from the actual constituencies they represent. And quite a lot of them didn't really expect to win. And they have careers and lives outside of politics. Um, they're really not all cookie cutter, former special advisor, political lifers. And so I think you're right. I think we will see quite a lot of them being surprisingly independently minded. There's also just the matter of, Number 10 are handling their backbenchers nearly as badly as they're handling the media. And the media, they basically just put absolutely everyone on the naughty step and don't seem to be understanding that that's why the Times and the Mail are going for them every day. Um, there's no reason for them not to. They're not being given anything in terms of interviews or story handouts anyway. The backbenchers are being treated more or less the same. The government seems to be thinking... Well, I've got a majority of 80, so screw it. I don't need to be nice to the MPs. And it's very, very, it's stark how quickly a majority of 80 can start feeling much, much smaller if you don't look after it and you don't cultivate it. And, you know, this is a government that won by a landslide in an election less than a year ago with romping support from most of the UK's papers. It does not feel like that now, does it? It, it certainly doesn't. Absolutely it, it, not. It's a, it, it's, a, it's a rather extraordinary turnaround. Um, and, you know, I think, I think in, in, in January we were sort of expecting uh, a, a calmer year politically, and obviously there would be um, Brexit fallout, etc. cetera, but um, coronavirus has certainly put paid to that. And the, and the government has only really, like I said before, got themselves to blame because of the way they've, They've handled it, you know. So anyway, listen, James, an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much for coming on. I know you're a very busy man. I don't want to keep you too much longer, but um, but we really enjoy having you on the pod. So please do come back, um, come back soon. So thanks very much for having me, guys. Thanks, James. James, thank you very much. Matt, I, I think we should go straight to our next guest um, because there is a distinct lack of rambling when, when Steve isn't here. So we need to fill it with guests. We need to fill out our time with guests rather than rambling. Maybe we'll do some rambling after we've spoken to... Tim Walker. Tim, are you there? I am indeed. Nice, ah. to, nice to hear your voice. Hi, isn't, Tim. Isn't I, the, the technology is working so well, and that is all down to a certain Mr. Withers. Um, well, it's a very exciting day today, today as we record, um, because 
perhaps the longest political battle of all time is finally over and we now have a new leader of the Liberal Democrats and that man is Sir Ed Davey. Um, he won with, uh, I think a lot of people on Twitter saying, oh, we were expecting it to be a bit tighter than that. I think, Ed, I, I mean, but Tim, you can talk about this in a minute, but Ed Davey got um, 63.5% uh, of the vote, which is pretty comfortable, uh, frankly. Um, what do we know about Ed Davey? He was born on Christmas Day, 1965, so perhaps he is the second coming, who knows. Um, he used to work in a pork pie factory um, as a younger man. Um, he, he is a uh, declared free market liberal, and uh, he speaks English, French, German, and Spanish. That's right. I went on Wikipedia just before we came on to do the pod. I don't know a great deal more about him, apart from he's kind of been around and he seems like a pretty decent guy. Tim, what are your thoughts on Sir Ed Davey? I think he's a very decent guy. I, I backed him for the leadership uh, against Joe Swinson. Uh, I think he is a very safe pair of hands. I definitely don't think Joe Swinson is going to be a hard act to follow. Um, I, I suppose the problem with Ed is that people who dislike my party will say, hell, he was involved in the coalition years. And of, of course he was, but, you know, he, he was very good on climate change. He was very good on renewables. Uh, he was respected uh, within the coalition and he did get he did get results. I think what disappoints me as a Lib Dem is that barely half the membership bothered to vote, which suggests even within our party, there's an awful lot of disillusionment. And I think, as I've been saying, uh, you know, in my piece in The New European, I think Ed has to accept that we've got an awful lot of apologising to do. I think the Swinson uh, period as, as the leader was a disaster. Uh, the revoke policy, uh, the way she conducted herself during that election, the very fact that she pushed for the election in the first place, you know, I, I, you know it's, it's fair to say that helped to facilitate what looks like it's going to be the hardest uh, Brexit or a no-deal Brexit. And, you know, the most right-wing government we've ever seen, certainly in my lifetime. So, you know, we've got a bit of an image problem, to be honest. Yeah, that, that's fascinating, actually. And before we get into the sort of under the bonnet with, with Ed Davey. That, that's a fascinating point about Swinson. And we perhaps haven't focused enough on the Lib Dems in the past sort of five or six months, I think, on this show. And um, the, the, you know, what, just, just briefly, you say Swinson's not a hard act to follow. There was, there was and you said you, did, you didn't back. I mean, did you see it coming or was it a shock? How, what a car crash Swinson was. I mean, were you shocked or did you kind of predict that? I mean, I interviewed her for the New European. Uh, I tried to be open-minded. And I, I remember saying to her, uh, Joe, what, why should you be leader? You know, the obvious question, you know, set out your stall. What, what, what can you offer? And she reminded me when I was about maybe 16 or 17, starting in journalism. And I was like saying, oh, I was on radio. She started saying I was on Radio Thanet. I appeared on BBC Breakfast the other day. I, I did something for Question Time. She started going through all her media appearances. It was almost embarrassing. She talked about 20 or 30 different media appearances. And I kind of stopped her. And I said, you know, that's fine. You know, when you're in politics, you you tend to talk to the media. But what did you say when you were on the media? What was your message? And she said, no, no, I'm, I'm great on the media. It wasn't enough. She struck me as very immature. I fear she was one of these people who got into politics because they liked seeing their, their faces on the television. I, I, I mean, I've, 
interview politicians for a very long period of time now. You know, I go back to sort of people like Dennis Healy, that's how old I am. And I have to say that in 30 years in journalism, I had never talked to somebody quite so immature and quite so shallow. So immediately after that interview, I, you know, I, I, I then went to interview Ed Davey, who I thought was an interesting man, a, a grounded politician who knew what he was talking about. He had ideas. I, I campaigned then very aggressively for Ed Davey to be the leader because I could see that Joe Swinson, you know, it was all style and no substance. Was there a, sorry, it, 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 interesting what you say there about um, Joe talking a lot about how much media she'd done. I felt that Layla did that an awful lot during the, the campaign. She'd always mentioned that in the past week alone, she'd been on five different front pages. It's strange that whenever you asked her during the campaign, it had always been five. Uh, the question I want to ask, actually, is um, you've written a very good piece in the, the print edition this week, and you um, end it by suggesting that the membership was maybe due a, a, an apology. I wonder if you feel that you partly got that through Ed's acceptance speech today. It felt like part of that was a, we haven't done good enough and, and, and we're sorry. It, it was low key, it wasn't triumphalist. Uh, he, he talked about waking up and smelling the coffee. And I think smelling anything in the days of COVID you could argue was an achievement. <laughs> and, and I think it, you know, it, it set the right tone. I mean, of course, uh, you know, I, I have an axe to grind here, as you know. I stood in Canterbury in the last election and I took the decision to stand down. And the reason I did that was when I went down to Canterbury, when I talked to the members, uh, the position of uh, Labour had changed very much in relation to Brexit between my adoption and between the election. And when I listened to them, they really didn't want me to stand. They could see what would happen. I'd divide the Remain vote. I would let in a extremely hardline Boris Johnson, Tory MP, because that is what has happened. We had almost mutually assured destruction, me and Rosie Swenson. If, if I stood, I would deprive her of the job. If she stood, she would deprive me of the job. We would simply get in a Labour Brexiteer. And I thought to myself, that, uh, sorry, a, a Tory Brexiteer. And it seemed to me, you know, given everything I've sort of spoken about since the EU referendum and before, it seemed to me a stupid and hypocritical thing to ask me to do. And I think Baroness Thornhill, the Lib Dem PRS, she did a very good report on what went wrong for us, the Lib Dems, in the last general election. And she was very honest. You know, she said people were promoted beyond their capabilities within the party. Uh, she, I think she blamed by implication a lot of the sort of thinkers in the party who were basically having the wrong thoughts. And she also said crucially that there was a rift that opened up between the Lib Dem membership and the, the leadership of the party. And I think it's just the same with the Labour Party. It's just the same with the Tories. If you actually listen to the members on the ground, they're usually pretty sensible people. And I, I had a situation where I could just have said to them, and this is what, by the way, the headquarters was telling me to do, just to tell the local members, you know, to shut up. I, I was going to stand and, and that's it. You know, I'm not engaging in a conversation with you. I'm just going to stand there and I'm going to go through to the count, you know, and try not to look too embarrassed as, you know, my Tory opponent, massive Brexiteer, raises her hands in triumph. And if I was a very insensitive person, if I was purely a political animal, you know, I would probably have done all that. But I don't think that's the way things should go in the Lib Dems, which always goes on about being a party that listens to its grassroots. And I think the fact that less than half, are, well, sorry, just over half, actually, of our membership 
have voted in, in the leadership uh, election shows there's disillusionment. There's a sense of, you know, we're not being involved. I know young uh, Lib Dems who joined about the same time as me, and I saw them at windy conferences up at Stockport when Vince Cable was still leader. They'd say to me things like, hey, how come Nick Clegg is, is uh, still a member of our party, you know, when he's, he's making millions of pounds out of Facebook, which is kind of everything we should be against. Now it's kind of least said, soon as mended about Joe Swinson. I think we have to change dramatically. We have to almost begin by saying we're very sorry. Do you, do you, can you see, um, because, so Sir Ed David has always struck me as a, as, a, as, a, as a serious politician. I think, you know, you mentioned the fact that he, is, he was involved in the coalition, which was perhaps not surprisingly so damaging for, for you guys um, between 2010 and 2015. Um, but I think he came out of it better than most um, that, were in, that were involved. There wasn't any... Um, there wasn't any, you know, you can, there's nothing you can a- absolutely pin on him. And of course, you mentioned the fact that he's been very good on renewables and climate change and that kind of thing. Um, he's a, this is a serious politician. You know, he was knighted because of his, his work in the political world. He's certainly respected by his peers. And, and he's also a member of the Privy Council. Um, it, 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 what I think he perhaps gives... That, that Leila wouldn't Leila Moran, who's um, who's up against for leadership, and perhaps Joe Swinson before that, and perhaps Tim Farham before that, is um, some gravitas. You know, he's been around a while. He he knows politics, um, but is that enough to rebuild the Liberal Democrats? I think he has to get back to brass tacks. I think, in a strange way, we do rather need a boring safe pair of hands now, Uh, somebody who just says the right thing, does the right thing. Uh, I think particularly after Swinson, I'm going to be prime minister and all that (laughs) nonsense. I think we need to get back to a more grounded and more sensible character. Uh, I mean, I'm I'm not going to lie. I think Ed is, is not a very charismatic character. I don't think he's great on TV. I think he needs to, uh, work on that a bit because unfortunately there's no point of playing by the Queensbury rules as politics becomes more and more bad tempered and I fear that that is how it's going to be looking ahead because the worse things get in the country the more acrimonious it's going to be so I think Ed does need to be a bit more strident you know he does need to talk a bit more loudly and put himself around a bit more uh, but I feel very confident with him as leader. I also think, by the way, Leila would have been great too. I think she was much more mature than Joe Swinson. And I, I like Leila. And I mean, during the, my ordeal in Canterbury, which I keep harping on about in this, in this podcast, she was the only one that actually phoned me up in the middle of it all. And she just said, you know, how are you, how are you getting on? And I just said, well, I'll be honest with you, Leila, I'm very depressed. And she didn't say, you know, you know, you should step down. She said, you know, it's your decision, she said, but politics, you know, there's more to life than politics and you should do, you know, you, you, should, you shouldn't get depressed about it. You shouldn't become miserable and unhappy. But what I liked about her was that I, I was able to have a conversation with her as a human being. So I hope very much Leila will have a, have a big role to play within our party because I think she's very good at talking to people on a human level. And I, I, I like her personally a lot. So, you know, I want very much this to be an, an Ed Davey, Leila Moran party, you know, with Leila almost as a de facto kind of deputy. And 
I think that way we will still appeal to younger people. Our problem, I think, is that we don't really appeal to younger people much because they feel very disillusioned with us over how we conducted ourselves in the election campaign. Uh, they, they didn't like the fact that we even pushed for an election it, itself. It was so obvious what was going to happen. Um, I remember John Burkow, who was at the time a speaker, saying to me it was the most depressing and bleak day of his entire parliamentary career when Swinson fell for Johnson's elephant trap. She fell into that elephant trap and, and we, we had an election that it was inevitable. Johnson was going to do very well out of. Tim, it's, they've not got much time, have they? Um, big, big elections next next May. Uh, council elections, Scottish Parliament, Welsh Parliament, where where your only members, Kirsty Williams, the the, the health, uh, the education secretary. Sorry, and obviously the, the London mayoral election, where um, since Siobhan Benita stood down, the Lib Dems don't even have a, a candidate at the moment. I don't know if you'd be throwing your hat in the ring for for that one. It, it's going to be a big test in May, isn't it? No, I mean, but, you know, there have been people on Twitter saying to me, you know, after my piece for the New European, you know, why don't you clear off? We don't want people like you. And do you know, that was the only time when I started to feel maybe the Lib Dems don't have much of a future because we we could be going the way that Labour got under Corbyn, where, you know, <laughs> Labour was saying to people, we don't want you in our party. <laughs> that is not the way to win. We have to reach out to people, to difficult people, maybe like myself, who, you know, got into politics, who are interested in politics pretty much because of Brexit, because we can see the horrifying things that are happening to our country. You're right, we haven't got time. I think winning slowly, if, if this is what the Lib Dems are about, winning slowly is the same as losing. We have not got time, so much is going wrong. And, you know, each setback that we have, we always think, oh, well, you know, we might be able to reclaim it later on. But we've had so many setbacks now that our country is starting to look like a wilderness. You know, one wonders what can actually be built from what is eventually left in the ruins that Johnson and his fellow extremists leave behind. Yeah, um, I, 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 again, we get to a depressing point on this podcast. It does not be many giggles this week. I need to tell. I need to tell a joke. We'll do some jokes. We'll do some jokes later. But I mean, on the Titanic. Yes, but Tim, um, and, and uh, we we won't keep you too much longer. But let's try, let's try and be upbeat. You know what? What is the best case scenario for the Lib Dems now? And what you know, give us a pitch. What potentially might they offer? the sort of person who listens to this podcast, who reads you um, every week in the, in, in the New European, what, what do you hope Ed Davey has to offer to, to a Remainer, basically? Well, we are important on the political landscape. We occupy an important, strategically important ground in that, you know, there are a lot of places where people will not vote Labour, but they would be willing to vote Lib Dem. There are a lot of places where people wouldn't vote Lib Dem, but they would vote Labour, you know, so we need to do a deal uh, with the Labour Party very quickly. We need to work with them in a very constructive way. You know, it is not an option for us to to not do that. And, you know, people like Gina Miller, who very commendably tried to set up strategic uh, voting campaigns during the last election, you know, good for them, but they shouldn't have had to do that. Uh, Corbyn and Swinson should have been working together. I know it was probably more Corbyn's fault than Swinson, and I know she did try. But I think when we're facing what we are in a very well-organised, very hard right, very ruthless uh, political movement in, in Brexit and 
Johnson's politics, we have to work together because they are very good at working against ours. You know, they got together with Nigel Farage in the last election. So I would say, you know, there is no time. If I would, was Ed Davey, I'd be on the phone this morning to Keir Starmer and I'd say, come on, we need to work together. Uh, it's almost bigger and more important than both of them. They have to do it. Uh, so I don't really see it as about sort of subtle policy issues. I don't really see it about that at all. I see it as fighting, uh, putting up a credible opposition to this government. And that means working together. And there's no alternative, sadly. So, that, well, I mean, this is fascinating. And I think a lot of people would be would be absolutely delighted to hear that. But, the, I mean, are we talking about, a, 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 I mean, it's difficult to have a coalition in opposition, I guess, or maybe not. But are we talking about a formal agreement where both parties come out and say, we are going to join forces in order to take on this government because of the a huge amount of damage that they're doing, or is it more is it is it looser than that? And also, what what do Lib Dems get Lib Dems get out of this? Because you know you were very sorely burned the last time there was an arrangement a little bit like this, weren't you? I I think they they need to leave it far more to the candidates. I mean, one of the things I found very funny about being a candidate was you always treated like a baby. I mean, you know, when I was standing there in Canterbury, you know, I'd often be in rooms and they'd say, well, you know, he, Tim can't do that. Uh, no, no, he can't do that. He, he can do that, maybe, but I don't think he'll do that very well. And it was almost like I wasn't there. And I kind of was vain enough to think that, you know, the candidate might be quite powerful. But in fact, you, know, you realise you have no power whatsoever. You're told what to do. You're almost like a performing sort of marionette for the party. You know, you just you just sort of perform and, you know, you get, you get a script. I mean, it's the same with all the parties. You, you know, you have to you have to learn your script. I, I would ask them to try to, and the same with the Labour Party and the same with the Lib Dems and, and, and the other opposition parties, to try and let the candidates be more themselves, say what they, you know, say what they want, listen to their, their local members more and, and be authentic. Because, you know, I think Labour and the Lib Dems were putting up actors really in the last election. So I think that's important. I think in, in practical terms, in terms of by-elections that will almost certainly start to come up after we've got through this coronavirus period, we need to work together. We need to work together in regard to council elections. It's just about being realistic. You know, there are some places where Labour can win and the Lib Dems should step aside. There are places where the opposite is true. And, you know, it's just, it's just looking at the figures. It's not about an, an argument. It's not about idealism or ideology. It's just about looking at the figures, where it's possible and where it's not. So they need to get together, be realistic. I think Starmer and Davy are very similar kind of people, really. Neither of them very charismatic. They're both quite practical, both get down to, 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 to the actual brass tacks of what's necessary. And I hope they'll do that. I think it's the only way forward. Well, that is a fascinating insight, Tim, and it's it's it, it's both both lovely and um, saddening to hear of your experience. I know you've spoken about it many occasions before, but with a bit of time in between then and now, it's fascinating to hear about your your experience in, in Canterbury. Would you consider standing again for the Lib Dems? I think an awful lot of us got involved in in with the Lib Dems because uh, immediately after the referendum, we were the Lib Dems were the only party that was you know reliably against Brexit, and it was quite openly against Brexit. 
and yet you see the problem with ours is that we weren't house trained you know we we weren't brought up in uh research departments of the parties you know our whole lives had not revolved around party politics we were sort of accidental politicians and i think for that reason we all had a, a pretty low boredom threshold a, pr a pretty low threshold when it came to being asked to do things that we didn't want to do and Funnily enough, I was very struck by the fact, because I, I phoned around a lot of people before I stood down in Canterbury, friends of mine in the Labour Party and in the Conservative Party, a broad range of friends, you have to in journalism, I, I love them all very much. And it's interesting that the Labour people and the Tory people were saying that's just not done. When you are standing in, a, in an election, you are a, a, a soldier on the ground, you are expected to fight. And they said, you'll, they'll never forgive you. What, what you are doing now would be appalling. You know, you, we couldn't do that in our parties. And I remember thinking at the time, this is just ridiculous. This is how politics has really got out of control. You can't, people can't think for themselves. So, you know, the absurd irony of somebody like me who had devoted their whole lives since uh, June 23rd, 2016 and before to opposing Brexit, to suddenly be in a position where I was expected to usher into the House of Commons a massive, hardline Boris Johnson disciple just seemed to me to beg a belief. And I couldn't understand it. So I think we need to make politics more, more of a home, more of a, a welcoming place for people like me who are not really that interested in politics, but are reasonable people. Because I think too many of us have sort of sat back in, in, in years gone by and thought, oh, well, you know, politics isn't for us. And, and broadly speaking, we didn't have to get involved in politics because up until now, politi politicians hadn't done too bad a job, really. They certainly hadn't started messing around with the country and its future in the way that this lot have. But we need to we need to welcome more mavericks, more sort of more ordinary people, not political obsessives, not anoraks, but people who are just sort of routine people who've had careers, lives. We need to get them into politics. I, I think my own experience has been depressing, but very, very informative. And I certainly see it differently now. Tim, absolutely fascinating to speak to you, as always. Um, but I'm sure we'll, we'll have you back on the pod again soon. Um, it's good to have a, a, an authoritative voice with regards to the Liberal Democrats. And I think, I think you know, is to Ed Davy. Um, well, yeah. well done, Ed, and we, we wish him all the best. Tim, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Good luck, Ed. From true crime to football, Brexit to folklore. For more great podcasts from Archant, head to audioboom.com slash channel slash Archant. Welcome back. And for those of you who go right to the end of the pod first, just to listen to the Brexit of the Week, uh, sorry, but there isn't one. Um, Steve is the only person who is qualified and indeed able to crown a Brexit of the Week. Um, so I'm sorry, but there simply isn't. I did actually, Matt, I don't know if you remember, but I did actually once when Steve was on holiday do the Brexit of the Week, not on the podcast, because I think it might have been before the podcast was launched, but in the paper. But this was the, we used to do a run of ten, but I could only get to eight, <laughs> so we had to have eight that week. Yeah, but it was pretty tough. After that, after that, we had to decide just to leave it to Steve. So we, there will be Brexiteer of the week, um, not next week either. I'm sadly to, sad to tell you, but um, but coming soon. But I, have I, can, I, I just I can, I can only uh, apologise to this because I've turned up this week. There's been uh, there's no Brexiteer of the week. There's been pretty much no jokes, no <laughs> no <laughs> rambling, no cultural tips, um, a lot of misery and an awful lot of yeah. Simon noises. There has been yes, 
there has been um there has been all of that you've brought you br- you bring the chaos um but not the not the laughs do you want to do you want a cultural tip yeah yeah i do i do I, want a cultural I, tip. I saw a tenet last night oh did you right then come on everyone else has done a review of it here is the new european podcast review of tenant it is excellent um right. but my word you're gonna have to concentrate for two and a half hours <laughs> So you see, um, I do like Nolan. I am a fan, but I'm not one of these mad, crazy fans. But I, I am a fan. Easy, because I really loved Interstellar, which was mildly reviewed, really, wasn't it? Did you? Mm. Is it along those lines? Is it as good as Inception? Or you know, I, the... I mean, I I think it's a, a, you know arguably his masterpiece. Um, I mean, he, he really he he asks a lot of you as a as a viewer, you know, you can't go in and sit down and say, go on then, entertain me for the next two and a half hours. Um, because it really does ask a lot of you um, in terms of the, the plot, such as it is. But equally, if you like car chases and explosions, you'll like it. And there's a, a, a lengthy section of it, which I'm convinced uh, was influenced by the, the backwards episode of Red Dwarf. Uh, I, know, <laughs> I know Red Dwarf's been a big influence on the uh, on the Nolan canon. Well, that probably influenced Memento as well, didn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's all come from Red Dwarf. <laughs> it's all from Red Dwarf. I, I um, is it worth risking socially distanced theatres to see it? Because I I missed Inception at the theatre, and having seen it um, subsequently really regretted not especially that famous scene obviously in the corridor not seeing it on the big screen what do you reckon oh yeah go and go and see this this is uh, since the cinema's reopened uh this is the third film i've been back to see um and the first one that's had an audience of of any size indeed a couple of weeks ago i saw uh, an american pickle um and myself my girlfriend were the only people in the in the entire screen for that one. I would say it was about 50% last night, but then, you know, pretty much every multiplex is showing it every 20 minutes. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, okay. don't don't wait for Netflix for this one. Right, all right, well, there you go. I, well, here's, here's my tip. Um, well, I just must, I must thank, and I can't, I'm sorry, I haven't got Twitter up in front of me. This is a very Steve thing to do, but um, certainly someone who I chat to a little bit um, via the pod uh, on Twitter, um, and if you tap tap me up, I'll mention you next week. Um, said watch Last Chance You because I am a I, we do talk about the NFL on this show as well sometimes. And I've never watched it. I watch Hard Knocks and all that kind of thing, but I've started watching it and it's very good. Have you have you watched that, Matt? I haven't. No. That's worth a watch. That is worth a watch. What else have I watched? Oh, I'm I'm sorry, but I I hit a very significant birthday um, last Saturday, so this is really old man chat now. But Sunday nights, BBC Two, I think it's half eight, um, the Gone Fishing with Bob Mortimer. And uh, that that is, have you watched that? Yeah, absolutely. I've not watched the, um, I've not watched the most recent one, the first one of the third series. So I was away at the weekend. But yeah, I uh, love the first two series. I've got the book, the spin-off book as well. Yeah, it's great, isn't it? It's just, uh, you know, it's the opposite of Tenet. You, know, yeah. you, don't, you really don't need to concentrate. You sit back. It's wonderful. Well, someone called it slow TV, and I think that's not quite right, actually, because I think there's quite there's quite a lot going on there. But because there's this kind of um, sort of wistful melancholy of the years that have passed, you know, and almost like the stream passing. You know, you can't get it back. It's gone. 
And the fact that the whole thing came about because they both had heart trouble. And I think we're learning more about these two characters, actual people, than we've ever, we would have ever learned from their catchphrases and the sort of madcap stuff they've done in the past. But of course, um, Bob Mortimer, of course, got also the best thing he ever did in his career. Any, any, any guesses, Matt? The best thing? The best thing he's ever done, maybe up until now, because this fishing thing is brilliant, but up until now, the best thing he's done. Uh, we'd love him to come on the pod if anyone if he follows anyone on twitter out there let's let's start let's start a little a little uh, me, uh, nice twitter pile on nice twitter pile on to get bob mortimer to come and t- talk to us about fishing best thing he's ever done in his career come on quick. i liked it a few years ago when he was a contestant on uh let's play darts for comic relief and his shtick was uh, he would always walk onto stage clutching a giant rolled-up carpet and he would chant, we hate laminates, we hate laminates. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's brilliant as well. I, I, I don't watch this, but sometimes you, you'll flick through the channels and is, is he, uh, would I lie to you or something like that? He's deep on Dave, Dave Javu or something. But if he's on... It is worth watching because the way he tells a story, whether it's made up or true, is extraordinary. He's a fascinating, brilliant raconteur. And we see that in the first episode, actually, when he's talking about the sad passing of his dad. But well worth a watch. I won't spoil it. Um, But no, the greatest thing he ever did was use his legal knowledge, because he's got a legal past, of course, to help get Jarvis Cocker out of the clink. In, uh, at the Brits in 2000, of he did. Uh, no, 1996, when, when Michael Jackson accused Jarvis Cocker of, bizarrely, I think, uh, assaulting a child. <laughs> yeah, I, yes, you're right. Gosh, I, do, I do, uh, do vaguely remember that. Yeah, save the, save the, release the Brits won, and Jarvis was indeed released. So let's do this quiz. As I said, um, prompted by my fascination with what will be the new, potentially new and temporary House of Commons, but you just know they'll probably leave it up or move it somewhere uh, if they do it. And it, like you say, it looks like cross between the Alliance and sort of the Eden Project, and it's like all these things put together. So here we go. Here we go, Matt. What are the lines in front of both sets of benches in the chamber in the House of Commons for? So obviously there is some social distancing stuff on the floor now, but before that, you remember the lines? And people would say, we tore the line. That is kind of where that comes from, I believe. What, what are they for? What are they actually for, those lines? I may be barking completely up the wrong tree here. Is it something to do with swords? Yes, it is. It's is because this, the it, distance. It, it, so it's the distance of two swords. It's to, stop, it's to stop potentially warring members from opposite sides of the house dueling mid-debate. Yeah, well, I, I, until relatively recently, and actually it might be that it's still the case in, in, in the Lords, but they're, uh, where they hang their, their, their cloaks up, yeah. um, certainly peers, they still had or have a hook for their sword. That's right. Um, well, the last, time, the last time I was in the chamber, I believe that that, was, that is still a case in the House of Commons as well. They still, have, uh, they still have loops, sort of ribbons they are, sort of loops for the, for the swords to be hung before they go into the chamber. There you go fascinating fact for you you can take these away dear listener and and uh, and bore your family with them later um when was smoking in the actual chamber when was smoking banned in the actual chamber Ooh. now i don't know but i suspect this is going to be one of those where it was ludicrously recently 
1989. Well, this is interesting, isn't it? Because I also would have guessed that. I would have gone for, oh, it'll be something like, well, it never was banned, and you could actually legally light a cigar in the chamber. But it was actually banned in the 17th century. Oh, really? Um, yeah, yeah, that's right. And, and to appease the smokers, they placed a snuff box um, next to the entrance um, in, in case the MPs needed perking up. I mean, none of people who don't know what snuff is, it's got, you sort of inhale it, don't you? And it's sort of a, I guess, a sort of ground tobacco sort of thing. It's and, pretty and, vile. Well, I've never, I've never partaken, although, although there was a period where myself and New European editor Jasper Coppin were actually going to get a snuff box for the New European news desk, but we never actually did anything. It's only a couple of quid, and we thought we'd try it out, but then we never got around to it. So maybe we'll do that and report back. Um, but, the, but the snuff box remains, um, and, it is, and it is not often used, but it is, uh, it is emptied and refilled, I'm told, at... Uh, at, at at uh, quite regular intervals so there you go fascinating stuff um what is so special matt withers about the paper on which our laws are written so the laws that are decided what is so special about that oh paper? it's printed on oh it's like i can't remember the i cannot remember the word for this material it's, it's basically like lamb's innards or something isn't it What's That's it? right. It's uh, it, it, uh, that is. So you've got. Oh, you're on two out, two out of three so far. You like meatloaf. What's the, um, what's the word? It's it's called vellum. Vellum. Yeah. Um, it's a it's a combination of goat and calf skin, and uh, the reason vellum paper is used as opposed to normal paper is very much historical. It will last for up to five hundred years. Uh, so um, we actually spend, or I think the last available data was 2016. That year, we spent £80,000 on vellum for new laws. I imagine this paper is quite expensive. Um, and the MPs kicked off about this, but uh, but the um, the cabinet office offered to pay the offered to pay the bill. So it's not actually a taxpayer bill, I guess. I'm not quite sure how that works, but um, and and yeah, it costs. Eighty thousand pounds. I mean, I would say normal paper and a laminator would, you know, would would probably work just as well. I would guess, but then um, we're not supposed to be using plastics, are we? So I I would wager that Jacob Rees-Mogg has got a file of facts made of vellum. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and no, there's no no Google that. Calendar for him. I bet he I bet he only uses vellum for anything. I bet his shopping list is on vellum. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, those notes that you stick in the window for delivery drivers who were just you if the doorbell's not working. That's Vellum. I don't think that he has to worry about not being in when a delivery driver arrives. No. Deliver room for Mr. Rees-Mogg. Um, okay, what bizarre fetish, um, and we all know MPs like a bizarre fetish, what bizarre fetish were MPs banned from doing on their way into uh, into the lobby before they voted, what bizarre fetish were they told they could no longer partake in on their Was way through the lobby? This um, rubbing the foot of the Winston Churchill statue. Absolutely right. This is brilliant, Mr. Withers. You're doing yeah. fantastically well. I have it, I have spent some time in Parliament. <laughs> yeah, they went. They were they were told off. It wasn't just. It was predominantly Churchill, but there's also a Thatcher. Um, statue there that was being was being touched as well, and I think actually the Labour MPs were warned against touching Clement Attlee. I don't know whereabouts they were touching him, but um, it, it basically it was wearing it away, and they were told not to do it anymore. 
and um, supposedly uh, new MPs were sort of told about this little um, this little weird thing that MP that the MPs would do on their way, and that's why you'll see them doing it. So, that, but they, they came to an agreement that they wouldn't ban anyone from. So it was part of their sort of induction day. Oh, and then we touched the toe on our way through, sort of thing. So the agreement was that the MPs couldn't actually be banned from touching the statue, so they can continue to do it, but they would remove it from the welcome day speech so that maybe less MPs in future. And after a generation passed, those Churchillian tours would be, would be safe for, for many decades and millennia even to come. Um, but supposedly they're wearing away. There you go. Um, so... A little double question for question five, and you're doing very, very well. You're doing very well. I've made this far too easy, clearly. Um, how many, and I'll give you within the nearest five, right, how many sitting members do we have in the House of Lords right now? Ooh, is this um, prior to the ennoblement of the new intake or inclusive? Uh, I believe it's inclusive, but I'm sure someone will someone will tell me one way or the other. But if you you know, I'll give you ten. If you get within ten, I'll give you. That. I think it's about eight hundred and forty. You're very you. Ooh, you. I thought you were going to be closer, and then you went off and added a forty to it. Um, it's and please do, dear listener, correct me if I'm long wrong. But my research suggests it's seven hundred and seventy-three. Um, but what is how how much room is there actually in the House of Lords chamber? How many how many lords and ladies can we actually get in there? Oh, you know of what? That, of that seven eight hundred, I I did know this. Um, I'm I'm almost literally kicking myself. Um, it's considerably fewer than that. Four hundred. Two hundred. That is all. I'll tell you what, it's a good job they barely turn up, isn't it? Else, Imagine the queues. Imagine the queues. It'd be like Morrison's in the early weeks of April, wouldn't it? It would. Queuing, um, queuing yeah, fortunately, it, it's very rarely, um, it's very rarely 200. <laughs> you know, it never, I, can't, I mean, probably for some of the Brexit debates. Um, well, there you go. A fascinating insight. And Matt, I think, I probably, I think I'm, I'm happy to give you four out of five there. I think you have done excellently well. Thank you. Thank uh, you. So congratulations. Uh, I think that actually equals, I think four out of five is the best anyone's ever done on these quizzes. So well done. Yeah, I'll take that. Congratulations. Um, Matt, will you be joining us again next week or are you dashing off to, to some secret location for a holiday? No, um, I went away for uh, two nights in Cambridge at the weekend and that's probably as far as I'm going to get until 2021. So no, I'll be here. Brilliant. Well, um, in that case, we will return then. In the meantime, dear listener, please do all those things that Steve rattles off and I haven't memorized. Well, go on Facebook and like us. Do you do that on Facebook? I don't know. Um, Join our New European uh, readers group. I don't think it's for slow readers or fast readers. It's just readers, full stop. Uh, maybe if you don't read, you should join. You know, maybe you could learn to read. Um, then what else? Oh, go ooh, subscribe to this podcast. That is a very good idea. And leave us lots of great reviews. I'm told my techie friends tell me that that's particularly important on, on the, if you're listening via this pod, to uh, this podcast via Apple. Is that right, Matt? That is correct, yeah. Uh, we don't want to get into the thorny issue of uh, algorithms, but uh, certainly that is the way that you get bumped up the page. If you like us and you want us to continue doing this, and God, uh, 
I will absolutely confirm that we want to continue doing it, then that is a really good way to, su to support us. If you haven't already, go out and buy um, the new European. It has a picture of Boris Johnson peeking out of his tent, I believe, on the front, and it is wonderful as always. Lots of Brexit, lots of politics, but also lots of art and culture in there as well. Um, you can follow the new European on Twitter, uh, at the new European, I believe it is. You can follow me on Twitter at Porit, P O W R I T T. Can we follow you on Twitter, Matt? You can. I'm at Matt Withers, M A T T W I T H E R S. I can't guarantee there'll be anything there you like, but chance you're on. <laughs> Matt is not a, a social media animal, really, are you, Matt? No. Um, no it's, it's, but... a, it's a dangerous world out there. It certainly is. Um, so you look after yourself, uh, dear listener. We will be back next week. Until then, Mr. Campbell, please take it away with those bagpipes. Here you go. It's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.